When I grow up, I'm going to be a vegetarian. Veterinarian? It's awesome. And I'm going to be what you said we need more of. So you want to be a plumberarian? Do you think I can? I think that if you work really hard, you can be anything. Promise? You bet I do. When you promise your kids the world, we're here to help you keep it. Ohio's 529 plan is the best tax-free savings plan for future college or career training nationwide. Start now at collegeadvantage.com. Today has not been a good day for the Republican Party. It began with a fourth defendant flipping in the Georgia racketeering case against Donald Trump. Attorney Jenna Ellis tearfully pleaded guilty in state court. By this afternoon, we got a bombshell new report from ABC News that Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has been granted immunity in special counsel Jack Smith's federal election interference case. Mr. Meadows has reportedly told Smith's team that he long believed Trump was being dishonest about his claims that he won the election, which is certainly something new. Now, that report has not been confirmed by NBC News and Meadows' lawyer is denying it. So we will have a lot more on that later in this hour. But we start with the absolute debacle unfolding among Republicans in the House of Representatives, which is entering its fourth week, fourth week without a Speaker of the House. Right now, Republicans are holding a vote behind closed doors to choose their fourth nominee for Speaker in less than two weeks. This morning, after five rounds of voting behind closed doors, the party nominated its third Speaker candidate, Congressman Tom Emmer. And then just four hours and 10 minutes later, Tom Emmer dropped out of the race. Why? Here's a hint. Right after Republicans took that vote, Donald Trump denounced Tom Emmer on his social media site, calling the congressman a globalist rhino. A source familiar with the matter told NBC News that Trump's rejection had made a successful floor vote impossible for Mr. Emmer. And so Republicans are right back to where they started. Now, one of the reasons hard right Republicans oppose Tom Emmer is because he voted to certify the 2020 election. Here is Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene on that very issue today. How much did Emmer's vote to certify the 2020 election have to do with the opposition against Well, it played a big role for me. I voted to object, and I couldn't support a Speaker of the House today. Admitting Joe Biden won the 2020 election is now heresy in the GOP. After Emmer dropped out, Republicans announced a new list of candidates, and all of them voted against certifying the 2020 election. To be clear here, it's not like Tom Emmer has been a big vocal opponent of the, of the big lie. After the election, Emmer was actually one of the Republicans who signed on to a legal brief asking the Supreme Court to step in and overturn Trump's loss. But apparently that is not enough for Republican hardliners. So still in this apparently never ending Republican race for speaker as of this hour, Florida Congressman Byron Donalds, a Trump supporter and freshman member who has not yet served a full term in Congress. Tennessee Congressman Chuck Fleischman, who called Trump's federal indictment a relentless effort to undermine and destroy Trump by any means and one that shows the weaponization of the federal government. Congressman Mark Green, who called being transgender a disease and who was nominated by Donald Trump to be secretary of the army, but had to withdraw over his history of transphobia. Congressman Roger Williams, who was investigated by the House Ethics Committee for adding a carve out 
to a bill that would have benefited the car dealerships he owns. And Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson, the New York Times reports that when Republican members of Congress tried to justify their votes against certifying the election, about three quarters of them relied on the arguments of a low profile Louisiana Congressman representative, you guessed it, Mike Johnson, who the Times calls the most important architect of the Electoral College objections. So that's what they got right now. And if that is all not decidedly bonkers enough for you, NBC News is now reporting that former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is floating an idea to have the Republican conference reinstall Kevin McCarthy as speaker with far right Congressman Jim Jordan as his assistant speaker. Because why have one guy who just lost when you could have two? So, yes, it is a debacle down there in the lower chamber, which <laughs> which seems to have led some Republicans to revive one of the worst ideas in congressional history. If we go to the floor, you know what I'm doing. I mean, let's make no mistake. I'll be nominating Donald J. Trump. I kind of like the idea of Donald J. Trump, quite honestly. He's the leader of our party. I've said that from the beginning. I'll continue to say it. Joining me now are Lisa Lehrer, New York Times political correspondent, and Charlie Sykes, founder and editor-at-large at The Bulwark. Lisa, when we were writing the um, names of people who are still in the running, there was a, a concern on the part of all of us that they would be gone before we even got to air. That's how quickly this is moving. What does the churn suggest to you? Uh, the churn suggests a party in chaos, a leaderless, directionless party that is uh, flailing around trying to fulfill one of the most basic functions of governance. I mean, really, the House in many ways in this in our current system doesn't even have that much power. Sure, yes, they can keep the government from shutting down, which is, of course, a really big deal and a thing that we're all going to have to deal with sooner than I think everybody would like in November. But, you know, the Senate is controlled by Democrats. The White House is controlled by Democrats. They're not putting out a broad conservative agenda that's going to be passed into law. This is, besides the budgetary function, a largely symbolic post in many ways, and they are failing at the symbolism. So I think what it suggests and what America is seeing is a party that is just in complete disarray right now. Um, uh, Charlie, we have some, this is a kinetic situation down in the House. They are voting right now and not on the floor. They are voting amongst mm -hmm. themselves to determine who gets to be the next nominee for however long. Mike Johnson, apparently, if I'm right, has the most votes with 80, with 85 votes. Byron Donalds is second. Now, Mike, Byron Donalds, Florida congressman, big Trump supporter, has not served a full term in Congress yet. Mike Johnson, who the Times refers to as the most important architect of the mm -hmm. resistance to electoral certification, electoral college certification in the House. What do you make of uh, these two, shall we call them front runners of the moment, Charlie? Well, we're, we're, we're deep into this doom loop of, of crazy and absurdity. I mean, the fact that we are now down to plan E or plan F, and you're talking about the backbenchers like this, is an indication exactly what Lisa just mentioned. This is a complete disarray. It is complete chaos. Um, there's no idea right now that is... Uh, too crazy uh, to be vaguely plausible because they've they basically burned through all of the non-crazy options, including some of the crazy options. So the the whole notion of 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 a unity ticket between Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan, that uh, Jim Jordan would be what the assistant to the speaker, the assistant speaker, a job that does not actually exist. Yes. I mean, this shows how desperate they are 
um, to come up with something. And the fact that we are now in the fourth week of doing this is an indication that there may not be any solution. There are at least eight members of what Ben Wittes called uh, the, the crazed slavering jackal caucus who are not going to support any sort of a normal uh, speaker. And there are maybe 20 um, normie, moderate you know, establishment Republicans that are not going to allow a legislative terrorist. So there's no solution to get to 217 votes. Why they're going through this this exercise of nominating somebody knowing that they they may be dropping out after four hours is an indication. And by the way, obviously hanging over all of this is the apex predator of the GOP, Donald Trump, who did flex his muscles. He does not have enough clout to elect one of his his MAGA uh, acolytes to be the speaker like Jim Jordan. But as he reminded us today, he can destroy any political career. And he is demanding absolute loyalty and absolute litmus test of belief in the big lie and support for his efforts to overturn the election if you want to have even the slightest chance of having a political future in this particular house. It yeah. is that crazy. Um, Lisa, you and you have a, a central reading in The Times today about the sway of Trump within the GOP. I'll read an excerpt. Trump's commanding position has turned Republicans into a party of one, demanding absolute loyalty to Trump and his personal feuds and pet causes, such as his false claims that the 2020 election was stolen. That's now the litmus test, it appears, for these people who wish to be speaker. I mean, I believe, again, can I, there have been so many different candidates through the day, but everybody on deck right now and the latest vote Count is Johnson at eight, Mike Johnson, 85, Byron Donalds at 32, Congressman Green at 23, Congressman Williams at 21, Congressman Fleischman at 10, other 31 present too. The fact that other gets almost as much as the second runner up tells you everything you know need to know about the indecision here. But I do wonder, given the sort of existing litmus test of election denialism, does that signal that nobody is going to get through this process who is not an avid supporter of Donald Trump? Well, it seems hard because, as Charlie pointed out, Trump can knock people out, but he can't actually get anyone in. So it shows how, like, divided the party remains. Uh, well, part of what's so striking to me about all of this is that these are some deep political cuts. I mean, these people are not household names. No. I would be very surprised <laughs> if many of our viewers right now were deeply familiar with Emmer or most of the, you know, who, who lost. And he's the, he's the majority whip. Right. He's, he he's the most well-known. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, with Trump, the chaos being sort of the point of it, which is part of the Trump brand, it works. People know who Donald Trump is. They love him. They hate him. They certainly have feelings about him. And they either like that brand of politics or they really, really do not like that brand of politics. This just feels like some people that most of America has never heard of kind of tarnishing the entire uh, the entire party uh, with this sort of brand of, of chaos and disorganization. And that concern is certainly something I've been hearing from a lot of Republican strategists and pollsters and people like that. Uh, over the past couple weeks as this has been going on, most of them believe that perhaps by the time the election rolls around a year and a, a year from now or so, this will be forgotten. But it is setting up exactly the contrast that many Democrats want, which is you have Biden out there dealing with a really volatile with war. Yeah, with war, dealing with multiple wars. And then you have the Republicans kind of going back and forth, a bunch of people that most people have never heard of fighting about a position that most of America probably doesn't really understand what it does or doesn't do. 
and so it's exactly the contrast that Democrats want right now. And all they have to do is sit back and let it happen. Well, right. And to Lisa's point, Charlie, you talk about the power yeah. of the moderates here. What continues um, to confound me is why moderates who understand what is happening to their own party, the yeah. fact that the House has been leaderless, speakerless for going into the fourth week now, why there are not entreaties to Democrats? Why don't moderates take the baton away from the, and I, I'm, I'm going to say moderates in quotes here, because yeah, right, what we right. think of moderates is not what they are, not. but people who are not actively Trump acolytes, why do they not take the baton away from the MAGA caucus and try and make a deal with Democrats? At what point do they do they break glass on that? Well, th that's, of course, a very interesting point. I mean, it, it, to, to your, your point, though, they're not all actual moderates. And, and so that's one of the reasons why they've been reluctant to do that so far, because that apparently is the cardinal sin, uh, shutting down the federal government, paralyzing the Congress at a time of, of international crisis, apparently is not as bad as actually cutting a deal with Democrats, because I think they understand that this would be in this modern political, uh, in this modern Republican Party, this would be political suicide. But at a certain point, when you've gone through all of the other options, this may be out there um, because it's clearly doable. You know, when you have a Republican Party that uh, can only lose four votes in the House, it doesn't take a huge number of them to say, OK, let's let's actually have some sort of a power sharing agreement. And of course, there was there was some talk about that last week, you know, with the empowering of you know, acting speaker Patrick McHenry. I would not be shocked if that option came up again. But again, nobody knows where we're going. We've never seen anything remotely like this. And we've certainly never seen a political party um, squander its majority or inflict these kinds of wounds on itself like this Republican Party. I can't think of any historical parallel where a political party has so, you know, has so damaged itself in the run up to the election. And to Lisa's point um, about, you know, their hope that people will forget all of this. Well, we are not close to a resolution and we are very, very close uh, to a government shutdown. And it is this overall impression that they are not interested in government, in go governing, that they are so extreme, they are so bizarre, they are so uncontrollable, that that's clearly uh, is going to play into, I mean, if, if you're a Democrat, it's hard to imagine a scenario that is more attractive, especially knowing that they're going to nominate Donald Trump next year as well, the chaos candidate. Yeah, there's the process, which is completely... Um chaotic at best, and the process. Again, the first ballot of the evening, closed-door voting among the Republican conference, Congressman Mike Johnson, who is called the most important architect of the Electoral College objections in the 2020 election. That man is the top pick at present behind closed doors among Republicans this evening. Lisa Lehrer, Charlie Sykes, thank you both for your time this evening. We Thank have you. a lot to get to on this kinetic night of news, including what one Republican lawmaker has to say about the fate of this leaderless Republican Party and his role in the chaos. But first. It's this whole thing about uh, flipping, they call it. I know all about flipping for 30, 40 years. I've been watching flippers. Everything's wonderful. And then they get 10 years in jail and they, they flip on whoever the next highest one is or as high as you can go. It's called flipping and it almost ought to be illegal. Donald Trump did not manage to make flipping illegal during his four years as president. But today he probably wishes he had. Stay with us. Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, 
and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. On election night 2020, with votes still being counted, Donald Trump made that very premature victory announcement, launching what would become a widespread fraudulent effort to convince voters and lawmakers and the courts that he had won. But now we know, courtesy of ABC News, that Trump's own chief of staff at the time, Mark Meadows, believed that Trump's victory statement was dishonest. He reportedly told special counsel Jack Smith's team, obviously, we didn't win. And we know that because ABC News is reporting tonight that Mark Meadows has entered into an immunity deal with federal prosecutors. According to their sources, Meadows has testified at least three times, including once before a federal grand jury. A lawyer for Meadows, however, is disputing ABC's reporting. Lawyer George Terwilliger said to NBC News tonight, I told ABC that their story was largely inaccurate. People will have to judge for themselves the decision to run it anyway. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Joyce, thank you for being here. I find ourselves, I find us in a strange position where we think he has an immunity deal, but his lawyer is pushing back against that. And then there's an open question about why there's no immunity deal in Georgia if there's one in the federal election case. How how do you sort of read the tea leaves on in all, all of this? Right. So I think part of the confusion, Alex, may be over the fact that there's a difference between someone who is indicted and who decides to conclude a plea deal with the government. They plead guilty and they agree to cooperate in exchange for favorable treatment. That's the sort of cooperation deals that we're seeing handed out down in Georgia. Meadows, though, I think is in a different category. He has been offered immunity in exchange for his testimony, and perhaps using the verb offered is a little bit misleading. Because when you're immunized, you really no longer have the option of not testifying. You have no Fifth Amendment right, nothing that keeps you from testifying. The only real question is the government giving you what's called use immunity or transactional immunity. Use immunity just means that your testimony can't be used against you. You can be prosecuted, but your own testimony can't be used. In transactional immunity, you're actually being given immunity from prosecution for the subject matter that you testify about. So it sounds like Mark Meadows has testified pursuant to a grant of some form of immunity, but he's not actually a cooperating witness. Aha. Does that explain why there's no deal in place down in Georgia where he has been fighting that indictment since it was first handed down? 
I think it could, and this is such a curious situation because you don't expect to see a witness or a defendant plead guilty to criminal conduct in one place and not another place. And in essence, by testifying under a grant of immunity in D.C., Meadows is preserving his ability to walk this tightrope that he's been walking all along where he cooperates just enough to avoid indictment, just enough to uh, avoid getting on the criminal side of the line without really conceding he's done anything wrong. Well, Mike, Mark Meadows is the tightrope walker. If there was one in the Trump administration, he'd be one of it. Uh, well, he'd be it. ABC News is reporting that Meadows informed Smith's team that he repeatedly told Trump in the weeks after the election that the allegations of significant voter fraud were baseless. He is not the only administration official to reportedly have done that. But why do you, why legally is it meaningful for Meadows to have done that, being uh, Mark Meadows is an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case? Yes. Yeah, so in a perfect world, every prosecutor would want Mark Meadows as a witness. He accompanied the president everywhere. He was with him on January 6th. He was around when calls were made to Georgia. No better witness to talk about Donald Trump's state of mind and what he knew. The problem with Meadows, even if this is his testimony, is that he has told different stories at different times and to different people, told an entirely different version of the facts in his book. And so with Meadows as your witness, you have both a credibility and a reliability problem. Will the jury believe him? And will he stick to it? Or will he move back the other direction as he did after he started cooperating with the January 6th committee? But if he's a credible witness on this issue that Trump was told repeatedly and understood that there was no fraud, that's really important for prosecutors. Do you, um, the, the ABC also reports that Meadows was specifically asked by federal prosecutors if Trump ever acknowledged to Meadows that he'd lost the election. And Meadows told investigators he had never heard Trump say that. Is that problematic for the special counsel? Well, I think it's problematic in the sense that prosecutors do need to prove that Trump knew. But look, Mark Meadows from the get-go has been one of those witnesses where prosecutors needed to know what he would say one way or the other. Didn't really matter if it was good for you or bad for you. They just needed to know where he stood. So he couldn't take the stand, for instance, as a defense witness and blindside them. Plenty of other evidence that Trump knew that he had lost what Meadows says here isn't really material, but the certainty about what he would say will have been important to Jack Smith. I do wonder, Joyce, given that Jenna Ellis today, another Trump attorney, uh, pleaded guilty in the Georgia case, how much pressure that is then going to put on either Meadows or how much interest there would be in, in terms of Fonnie Willis offering Meadows a plea deal in the Georgia case. So that's an interesting question, Alex. We don't know if Fonnie Willis has offered a deal, if she's interested in having him, you know, sort of line up on team prosecution with her, given the problems with his conflicting statements in the past. But certainly he has to be feeling pressure at this point. And if that deal is available, now would be the time for Meadows to take advantage of it. He has a very experienced lawyer, a DOJ insider, who at least this far has managed to help him avoid indictment up in D.C., but very different trajectory in Georgia, where he is one of the co-defendants who's still in the case, and they will have to make a decision about where they stand shortly. Yeah, watch this space. A lot going on here. Joyce Vance, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks. When we come back... 
A little over a decade ago, he was the leader of the Republican Party. And then came Donald Trump. What happened to Mitt Romney and the rest of the GOP? Journalist McKay Coppins will join me to talk about his explosive new biography on Romney's Reckoning. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Managing a business is a juggling act, but finding the right music shouldn't be. Is your current business music service draining your budget or killing the vibe? Pandora Cloud Cover offers a massive library of fully licensed music curated for any business. From jazz cafes to bustling shops, create the perfect atmosphere with ease. Plus, schedule playlists, add announcements, and control it all from anywhere. Stop the headaches and start saving. Visit cloudcovermusic.com save50 and use code save50 to save 50% off your first four months. Back in March of 2016, as Donald Trump was on the verge of becoming the Republican presidential nominee, Mitt Romney was outraged. Romney was so distressed that he made a last-ditch, one-man effort to stop Trump. He announced that he would be making a speech at the University of Utah on his own, just to issue a warning. Here's what I know. Donald Trump is a phony, a fraud. His promises are as worthless as a degree from Trump University. He's playing the members of the American public for suckers. He gets a free ride to the White House, and all we get is a lousy hat. According to a deeply reported new book by The Atlantic's McKay Coppins, Romney worked furiously behind the scenes to prevent Trump from winning the Republican nomination. After two failed earlier presidential bids, Trump, Romney, considered running once again in 2016. Romney was willing to wage a quixotic and humiliating presidential bid if that's what it took. He might even be able to swallow sharing a ticket with Senator Ted Cruz, a man Romney had described as scary and a demagogue in his journal. But Romney didn't think the gambit would actually succeed in taking down Trump. Romney was, of course, correct. And since then, Donald Trump's grip on the Republican Party has not just pushed Mitt Romney to the outskirts, it has made him a marked man. A few days before January 6, 2021, Senator Angus King of Maine spoke to a high-ranking Pentagon official. After that call, King immediately called Romney. This is from Coppin's book. There's talk of gun smuggling, of bombs and arson, of targeting traitors in Congress. Romney's name has been popping up in some frightening corners of the internet. King isn't sure Romney will be safe. Romney then texted Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, there are calls to burn down your home, Mitch, to smuggle guns into D.C. and to storm the Capitol. I hope that sufficient security plans are in place, but I am concerned 
that the instigator, the president, is the one who commands the reinforcements the D.C. and Capitol Police might require. Senator McConnell never responded. On January 6th, as rioters began to breach the Capitol and senators were ordered to evacuate, Coppins writes that Romney lost his composure and he confronted his fellow Senate Republicans. Romney turns to Josh Hawley, who's huddled with some of his right-wing colleagues, and Romney starts to yell. At least one reporter in the chamber will recount seeing Romney throw his hands in a fit of fury as he roared, this is what you've gotten, guys. Josh Hawley remains in the Senate. And now Mitt Romney is on his way out, a pariah in a party he once helped lead. But Coppins takes note. What Romney doesn't pause to consider in this moment is an uncomfortable question. Is any of it my fault, too? We are going to talk about that and a lot more when McKay Coppins joins me coming up next. How you doing? Put your mask on. Don't tell me what to do. Please put your mask on. It's, it's required by law in the circle. I'm standing six feet away. I'm sorry. It's required of the Okay, circle. I'll tell you what, because you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do it because I'm going to have a chat with you. Why aren't you supporting President Trump? That was Senator Mitt Romney being confronted by an angry Trump supporter at the airport on January 5th of 2021. And it is emblematic of Romney's experience as a Republican in the Trump era, and one that could arguably have contributed to his announcement last month that he will not seek re-election in 2024. In advance of this, over the course of two years, Senator Romney gave extensive interviews and access to one journalist, McKay Coppins of The Atlantic. In Coppins' new essential biography, Romney reveals all of his thoughts on Trump and the Republican Party at a moment when both remain very much in crisis. Joining me now is the author himself, Kay Coppins, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the new book out today, Romney, A Reckoning. McKay, congratulations on a book that is so well-timed, so deeply researched. The reviews have been extraordinary. Um, we have a lot to get to, so I'm going to get to it right now. First, the, the level of prof the just profound personal animus mm -hmm. that Romney holds for other leading lights in the Republican Party. This is just a few highlights. Ron DeSantis, there's no, just no warmth at all. And that's one of the nicer quotes. Newt Gingrich, a smug know-it-all, smarmy and too pleased with himself. Santorum, sanctimonious, severe, strange. Rick Perry, Republicans must realize that we have to have someone who can complete a sentence. Ted Cruz, frightening, scary, a demagogue. Huckabee, a huckster, a caricature of a for-profit preacher. Bobby Jindal, a twit. John Kasich, lack of thoughtfulness, lack of attentiveness, ego. No wonder he and Chris Christie spark. With friends like that, um, I am eager to know whether this, this distrust, this distaste, for, for the leaders in his party, was 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 it always in him or did Trump really catalyze a sense of anger and frustration? Well, I, I think that that what's important to know about this quotes is some of them are things that he told me over the course of those two years. Some of them are from his journals dating back a, a decade. Right. And so what that shows is that for a long time, he has had a sense that the Republican base gravitates toward figures who he finds unimpressive, uh, to say the least, yeah. sometimes frightening, right? Um, but especially in the last few years, he's seen the party 
you know, become more and more populist, more and more extreme. And, you know, those quotes have started to get a lot of attention in the last few days. And people have said, oh, he's consumed with resentments. He's just, you know, mad that he lost his election. I think what it really reflects is a profound disappointment in the leaders of his party, this party that he once believed in so much that he thought represented all these things like free trade and democracy promotion. Um, and, and now he sees it become a cult of personality around Donald Trump. And he sees these people he once did respect or at least hold in high regard um, rally around Donald Trump, even while in private, they tell him, yeah, Donald Trump is a menace. Yeah, he's he's terrible. But we have to do this because we need to win our next election. I think something after January 6th and him just snapped yeah. and he was finally ready to unburden himself. And that that's really what he did with me for two years. I do have to ask, because you bring it up, like, does Romney see himself as part of the trajectory towards Trump, however incremental? I mean, he did run for office mm-hmm. multiple times, higher office multiple times in 2012. He helped move the party rightward on immigration and the social safety net. Does he does he see himself implicated at all in the sort of indignant roots of Trumpism? Well, that's actually kind of the question that hung over all of our conversations for two years. And I asked it asked him multiple times, you know, how complicit are you in what the party has become? And to his credit, he spent a lot of time grappling with that question. And, you know, he basically the story of his career over the last, you know, 10 years, 15 years is flirting with uh, the the far right in his party in hopes of winning a primary, winning, becoming president, right? But he always believed that he could keep them at bay, right? He could harness the energy of the the extreme forces in his party, but not, uh, you know, not give in to them, not let them take over the party. Uh, he told me when he was running for president, his whole strategy was, I just have to get to 50.1%. Mm-hmm. And so that means standing on on stage and accepting Donald Trump's endorsement, I'll, I'll do it, right? Now he looks back at those episodes with some regret. He told me, you know, if I did something to uh, to give credibility to Donald Trump as a political figure, I regret it. Um, but he also thinks that I think it's hard for him to accept too much blame yeah. because he has been one of very few Republicans who has tried to push back against uh, the spread of Trumpism in his party, while almost no one else is willing. Well, voted for Trump's impeachment, said what he said after January 6th. It seems like he also reserves a special place in hell, for lack of a better term, for the Republicans who he knows no knows better. He yeah. knows no better, yes. including Josh Hawley or even Ted Cruz, these mm. kind of Ivy League trained lawyers who he thinks are among some of the smartest people in government right. who not only abide Donald Trump, but support him, who 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 give him the 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 bully pulpit effectively. One of the things he told me is, you know, with people like Ron Johnson, who, who's a conspiracy theorist, I'm actually more OK with him because he seems to genuinely believe the crazy things he says. What he said to me is that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz know better. They, but but they affect this kind of, you know, uh, holier than now righteous indignation on behalf of the populist elements of their party that he knows is a put on. And it, it really drives him crazy. And, and that that uh, that frustration animated a lot of our conversations. It's it's hard to know whether the story of Mitt Romney will be one that is seen as a tragedy or uh, a, a story about a, a hero or maybe it's both. I mean, you have this mm-hmm. devastating anecdote of him basically 
basically sitting alone by himself in his Washington, D.C. apartment eating salmon on a hamburger bun with ketchup, watching Ted Lasso by himself because nobody else wants to hang out with him. And he's now leaving the party Mm -hmm. kind of crushed by the machine that he was once in charge of. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that he deserves some credit for this last few years coming to terms with what his party has become uh, and what complicity the kind of mainstream establishment that he was part of has in what that party has become. But he's paid a price, right? He's paid a price for his opposition to Trump. Not only has it effectively ended his political career, he really would have struggled to get reelected in Utah, but he's lost friends. He's lost relationships. Um, I've seen people, even since this book, uh, the, the leaks have started from this book, people who, you know, once considered themselves big Mitt Romney fans or partisan Republicans now kind of turning on him. And I think he deserves some credit for even if it was later in his career, being willing to say the things that very few in his party are willing to say. And say them to you, my friend. (laughs) He said them all to you. You got everything. I still can't believe it. What a book. McKay Coppins, congratulations on Pub Day. May you move many units, my friend. You deserve it. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Alex. Still ahead. Still ahead. As the situation in Gaza becomes more dire and Israeli citizens continue to wait for word of loved ones taken hostage, the man who oversaw President Obama's national security communications says there are unexplored paths out of this conflict. Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes joins me. That's coming up next. What I am about to show you is very hard to watch. So if you'd like to take a minute to prepare yourself or to step away, you can do that now. Okay, here we go. These are videos out of the neonatal intensive care units in hospitals throughout Gaza. Across the Gaza Strip, there are 130 premature babies whose lives right now depend on this type of intensive care, care that relies on an uninterrupted power supply. Some of these infants cannot be without these machines for even five minutes or they may die. And because Israel's blockade is still not allowing fuel into Gaza, the odds of these premature babies dying needless deaths, well, those odds increase by the hour. The World Health Organization announced today that six hospitals in Gaza have already had to shut down due to lack of fuel. Now, this is video of an Israeli woman named Shiri Silberman Bibas being captured by Hamas on October 7th. In her arms, you can see her three-year-old and nine-month-old boys. All three of them are believed to be held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. According to the Israeli military, about 20 of more than 200 people believed to have been taken hostage are under the age of 18. The toll this war is taking on civilians is unfathomable, unfathomable, but it is also cyclical. Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor for President Obama, writes in the New York Review of Books, the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Middle East, and the U.S.'s own recent experience suggests that violence is likely to beget more violence, that trauma will beget more trauma. It is easier to start or escalate wars than to end them, and the consequences of war are always unpredictable. 
Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama and co-host, of course, of the podcast, Pod Save the World. Ben, thank you for joining me as we talk about just a wrenching topic. You, you, you help contextualize this moment in terms of 9-11 and the emotional toll it took in the U.S. And I wonder if you can sort of elaborate on why you think it's important to understand the emotional response uh, of this moment as we sort of chart a path forward. Yeah, well, Alex, I, I described, you know, witnessing the 9-11 attacks as a 24-year-old in New York City and being filled with rage and believing that the pathway to national security came through vengeance and not wanting to hear anything about the political context of how we might have gotten there or alternative courses of action for how to respond other than getting these people and doing whatever it took to get them. But I think that if someone told me or told this country collectively uh, on that day, that our response uh, would lead to the war in Iraq and all the catastrophe that came with that, the war in Afghanistan, uh, the United States casting aside laws of war that we had painstakingly helped write ourselves for decades, uh, a kind of rise of autocracy around the world under the guise of countering terrorism, the kind of ugliness and xenophobia in our politics. So much was unleashed by our own emotional reaction that was not un was not intended and frankly uh, did not turn out the way we wanted it to. I think with Israel, you have understandable rage and desire for accountability and demand for security in this moment. But as we are already seeing in Gaza before ground invasion, this is already unleashing potentially unintended consequences in terms of the human toll in Gaza, but also risks of escalation all across this region from the West Bank to Lebanon to other parts of the region where we're seeing violence in Iraq and Syria and Yemen and other places. Uh, now is the time to think very carefully about what will be most likely to bring about a, a security and a peace that stops this cycle of trauma and violence that has been the characteristic of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for so very long. Yeah. In all of the discussions about this, it seems like there's almost a false binary presented. It's either just massive carnage in Gaza or nothing. But of course, that's not that's not those are not the only options on the table. And I wonder if you could just elaborate more broadly on what you think are alternative paths, alternative paths here for Israel. Well, it really depends on what is the objective of this operation. Um, I think there are some on the kind of far right side of the Israeli coalition. Um, and this is not me thinking this. They've, they've basically said this themselves. Uh, who may want to essentially push those Palestinians, two million of them, out of Gaza uh, and essentially take that land. Um, then uh, I think there are some in the military establishment who just want to deal a, a huge blow to Hamas and its military capabilities. Uh, and then there are some, I think, who are still voices for peace in the long run. I think the, the point here is if the objective is on the other end of this war and whatever is done to Hamas, if the objective is a peace between Israelis and Palestinians, then there has to be thinking done about how do you achieve that? How do you not do something that is going to put that further away and make that less likely in the future? I think those alternatives exist with Israel having some high ground here um, from the horrific nature of these attacks and from the fact that a lot of the other Arab countries, they have no love for Hamas. They see them as an Iranian proxy. They see Iran as an enemy. Uh, you could go to those countries, including some who have very deep pockets like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and be like, this is the time for you 
to build an alternative Palestinian leadership in Gaza. We're going to take care of Hamas, but we're going to do it in a targeted way. We might not go in and certainly not reoccupy the Gaza Strip, uh, might not even have a full-scale ground invasion. There's going to be targeted action to go after Hamas's military wing, to degrade their capabilities, perhaps to take out their leaders. But we need to couple that with an effort to significantly invest in a totally different Palestinian leadership that can be a partner in some more lasting peace. I think anything that doesn't incorporate the objective of peace between Israelis and Palestinians will leave us in some form of cycle and violence, cycle of violence, while also raising all manner of risks of escalation across that region and perhaps even in other places. Yeah, and you write so eloquently about the role that the U.S. needs to play in forging a more lasting peace or making sure this doesn't end in mass civilian casualties. Um, it is worth reading. Ben Rhodes, my friend, it is always good to hear from you. Thank you for your time and thoughts tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have some breaking news on the chaos in the House. Republicans have chosen Mike Johnson to be their fourth speaker nominee. Congressman Johnson was a leader in getting Republicans to support the big lie in the House. He organized his colleagues to sign on to a lawsuit to overturn the election. The House is now adjourned until noon tomorrow, which is the earliest we could see a full floor vote on Johnson's bid for speaker. That is, if Congressman Johnson even lasts that long as the speaker designate. That is our show for tonight. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.